0: brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick, I'm author of Spiritual Grit, Jesus-Centered Life, and general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, which is important information because the month of October is Bible month. So we're going to be telling you more about the Jesus-Centered Bible. It's not Bible month because it's officially Bible month, because it's actually unofficially Bible month, so it's not officially Bible month. Just want to give you that warning. The legality of all this is is complicated. So the situation is that we have named October Bible month because we wanted to. We wanted, <laughs> we wanted to, to focus on the Bible. It's actually a good month to focus on the Bible because we're like, now we're in the, what I would call the downward slide into Christmas. You can feel it starting right now, like in a couple weeks before Halloween, where you're literally like on a water slide and you're at the top of the water slide, and you're about to kind of scoot your way off, and as soon as mid-October hits, man, you are flying toward Christmas, and there's a lot that has to happen between now and then. And one thing that would be great to have happen is if you thoughtfully considered buying a unique Bible for the important people in your life, like the Jesus Center Bible. The reason it's unique is that the features that we've uh, created, for this Bible, there's eight or ten of these special features in this Bible. They're all oriented to helping you uh, see Jesus and experience Jesus and be drawn to Jesus no matter where you're reading in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter. We have these unique features that aren't in any other Bible that help you to taste and see that Jesus is good no matter where you're reading, and there are a lot of different creative angles on this. So this whole month, we'll be exploring the heart of Jesus through the lens of the Bible, and uh, uh, there's no better way to explore the heart of Jesus through the lens of the Bible than to get a get a jesus Center Bible if you don't already have one. So if, if you're new to this, uh, it's really one Bible that comes in various different covers, uh, uh, color covers, and there's a hard cover, and so forth, but it's it's all the same. So I invite you, we'll have a link on our podcast page to go to group.com, and sample the Jesus-Centered Bible, look at what the, the special features are, and consider whether that might be a, a great Christmas gift for you to, to give out in just a couple of months. So as we focus on the Bible, we're really in pursuit of the heart of Jesus through the accounts that we know about him through the Bible, and we're going to do that by leaning on C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia as a sort of a narrative lens, to explore the Jesus of the Bible. So C.S. Lewis had a profound ability to spotlight the truth about Jesus using narrative metaphor. We kind of, with familiar things like Scripture, we kind of get almost numb to the reality of Jesus. It's amazing how many people who are Christians, who read the Bible, who really have a very distorted picture of Jesus. Because these are stories, in many cases, they've grown up with, and they've become sort of numb to them. So, when we read the Chronicles of Narnia, the seven books, the seven children's fantasy books that C.S. Lewis wrote, he was really attempting to highlight kingdom of God themes and the character and personality of Jesus through a narrative story. And it, when you look at Jesus through a different lens, it helps you to understand the Jesus of the Bible. So. In the Narnia books that that Lewis wrote, the metaphor for Jesus is a great lion king that he named Aslan. So today we're going to explore another story from the Chronicles of Narnia. We'll be doing that this whole month of October, one story a week that will lead us sort of down a path to discovering the Jesus of the Bible. And today, Steph Hillberry will be joining me on this adventure.
1: Hey, everyone.
0: So today we're going to be reading, as I mentioned, this little little vignette from the book The Horse and His Boy uh, by C.S. Lewis. It's the fifth book in the Narnia series, but before we dive into that story, I want to explore a dynamic that is embedded in the story we're going to read that is kind of central to our life, and it's central to our life even whether or not we believe in God or follow Jesus. So the the issue is... Why does life sometimes seem unfair? Why do some people seem to have much and others have little? Why am I going through pain and another is not? Why do others experience things that I wish I could experience, but uh, every time I try, I can't? Life sometimes seems indiscriminate in how bad things happen to us, and it's the indiscriminate aspect of how life operates that really scares us. We want uh, regularity. We want predictability. We want to be in control of life and the factors that impact us. And if we sense that we're not really in control, that these things happen indiscriminately, it's deeply scary. So we try to find ways to snatch back control in our life to lessen the impression that things happen indiscriminately and that pain happens without cause and effect. So so we try lots of things to ensure our stability and our success and our happiness and we use all kinds of what I might call talismans to keep away the pain that we fear and a talisman is is sort of a symbol of something it's something we invest our belief in and in by believing in that thing that talisman we think that we are we have now have a measure of control we didn't have before. So Steph maybe we you and I could talk a little bit about some examples of talismans in our culture, the things that we do to try to ensure ourselves against indiscriminate pain in our life. So what are some things that you just observe in the culture, in your friends, maybe even in yourself, that you use as you, they, we kind of invest our belief in, hoping that that will keep away the indiscriminate nature of life from us?
1: Well, I feel like I talk about this often on the show, but I love like health and wellness, and in the wellness culture... There's a lot of talismans that kind of promise that if you eat healthy, if you take antioxidants, if you drink a, you know, green powder drink, if you do, I mean, there's a whole list of things. If you do these things, then you won't get cancer. You won't, you know, your loved ones won't get cancer. You won't end up having to struggle through the pain and hardship of something, some kind of disease that I think, we believe is maybe preventable. And this, of course, isn't to say that disease can't be preventable, but sometimes people get sick and they do all the right things. And I think that some it, it, it's easy to hope and put your belief in a series of activities and steps you can take that will somehow shield you from that happening. And there is no, there's no formula. There's no foolproof way to do that.
0: And some of that's about your motivation, right? So you could be motivated to do those things to live healthy and fit, or you can be motivated to do those things thinking in a belief system that if I do these things, then the outcome, the deserved outcome I get, will be longer life, health, and freedom from the pain that other people go through, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's like an insurance policy, in a, in a sense, that we invest belief in. It's the same way what—I uh, do a lot of parent uh, seminars— and one of the most remarkable talismans amongst par- among parents today is that if I get my kid into the right school and whip them until they get the right kind of grades, and even actually overhelp them so that they can get the right grades, and they stay on that track, and they stay involved in sports, and they build up their resume by the time they're, they're done with high school so they can get into the right college so that in the right college, they can thrive and make the connections they need to get the right job that will set them up for life. It's amazing the level of belief that parents put in this cycle of safety. They desperately want their kids to succeed, and they um, believe—they have invested belief in in this pattern that will guarantee that on the other side. And it's amazing, even when uh, I, I do a parent seminar on entitlement, and one of the things that I expose parents to is all of the research that's been done on happiness, what, what drives happiness in people. And when I tell them that um, at po- past a certain a low point of income, happiness does not increase as your income increases, they're totally incredulous. I have to I create handouts, so I hand out the research so that they can look at it themselves, <laughs> because there's such this deep belief that if we can just create a pathway toward greater affluence our kids will be much happier not recognizing that that real happiness comes from fulfilling your a deeper purpose in your life that's where real joy and happiness comes from but these are some examples of talismans you could you could apply it you could look literally anywhere in our culture like if you if you have a 401k or retirement plan you're probably getting messages all the time about how much what percentage of your income you should be saving to live a comfortable life in your retirement and I don't know a single person in my life who is saving what they're supposed to in order to have a successful, happy life in their retirement. Uh-oh. <laughs> so we live in this constant state of, if I could only, if I could only, if I could only, the the promise on the other side is that we can keep away the indiscriminate pain that that is kind of lurking there. So uh, we have another example, you know, of our friend, the becky Nader who... Um, Many of you who are long listeners to the podcast know and have followed her story that she uh, last year was plunged into great trauma in her in her marriage she discovered that her husband was uh, doing things that she had no idea about that was that was not only violating their marriage but criminal um, the things he was doing and eventually uh, because of his abuse of her um, Becky had to leave the state, and, and uh, she's now started a new life in Oregon. But one of the things that Becky used to talk about as she was going through this is that one of the questions her friends and others would ask her is, well, did you know all of this was going on in in with him? Did you know? Did you have a sneaking suspicion? Did, did you not sniff anything about this behavior going on? And she'd say, honestly, no, I didn't. But the real question behind that is, is well, could this happen to me? Could my spouse be hiding all of this stuff from me? And if so, what are the signs? How can I know? I want to stay on top of this. I don't want the pain that I see you going through to happen to me, so what can I do to avoid that happening? And you must have seen something, Becky, that would uh, help me to know whether I'm living in the same situation. It can't be indiscriminate like you're describing, Becky. There must be some kind of indicator. So... We're trying to find patterns and clues to keep our pain at bay because we're afraid of pain. for good reason, it hurts. So Steph, when we were talking about leading up to the podcast, you were talking about your own journey that you've shared before on the podcast of wanting to have children and not being able to have children and being in a community of others who have not also been able to have children and feeling the what that feels like to have a deep hunger for, for something and be thwarted and thwarted and thwarted again. So tell me a little bit about your story, your journey through this, and how this whole idea of fairness and comparison and why do some have, but I don't, and what's the meaning behind that? Tell me some of your journey behind that.
1: Sure. So I think that it as with a lot of things in life, we compare what's normal based on what other people are experiencing, and when our life kind of falls outside of what it seems like people in our lives are going through, it really stirs up a bunch of questions. Um, and for me and for my husband, not being able to have kids is a—that's a pretty significant um, deviation from what a, the normal experience is for people. And so I think that we. We've had expectations about what life in our future would look like that have kind of have been extremely challenged. Um, all of a sudden, we're forced to sort of think about, well, what would plan B look like? All, all in the midst of being around everyone else who's sort of proceeding the course as per usual. And for me, it, it definitely stirred up lots of questions to God, like why I pray the same prayers that I know a lot of people do, and yet it seems like their prayers are answered and mine aren't. And um, you start to kind of figure, you start to ask questions like, why is your will for them this, but your will for me is different? Is there something wrong with me? Is there something I'm doing that's wrong? Um, and, you know, it, I was telling a story. I had this one friend and she, she had started a family um, and she was wanting to expand her family and kind of going through a, a difficult time in that process and she was praying and she'd kind of given God a timeline. Like we, we are going to, to have another child by the end of the year. And she just had kind of put her foot down and really said, this is my, this is what I want from God. And I'm really going to be specific and I'm going to ask for it. and I'm going to put my foot down and I'm just going to believe it's going to happen. And as an outsider who had been praying for gosh, nine years to have a kid, I just thought, Oh, well that will never work. You know, like I've done that before. I tried that, like in year one point five, and that didn't pay off for me. And then, lo and behold, it sure did happen for her. I mean, like in the eleventh hour, it happened. And I just thought, you've got to be kidding me! What? Why? Why did it work for her but not for me?
0: And what? And d- below that, you got to be kidding me! Um, what were the questions you
1: had, or even the complaints you had? Oh well, I think you just ask questions like, "Well, God, do you like them better? Do you?" Do you th- you know? I, I, am I not loud enough? Am I? What, do you think that I'm just somehow a stronger person and can handle more adversity? Do you have a bigger plan for this? Um, do you?
0: Did she do it right, and I didn't? I didn't do it right. Maybe she had faith, and I, but that statement that she made, I I want a child by the end of the year. Maybe even as ridiculous as that sounds, maybe that's faith, and I don't have any.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think all those questions come up when when we are comparing what's happening in someone else's life to what's happening in our life. And uh, that's kind of the, the focal point of our story today yeah. from Narnia, which is, it, it gets really murky when you're asking all these questions to God, and your basis of what is true and what should happen is partly framed by what's happening in other people's lives.
0: Yeah, and we, we have to make sense of our life. I mean... If you go to see a movie and the narrative doesn't make sense, it's a bad movie. It's true. Yeah, you'll tell your friends, that's not a very good movie because the story didn't make sense. So we have this deep default hunger to make sense of our own story, too. So we'll bring meaning to things, even when we don't fully understand that meaning. So even the questions you are asking God are questions that are designed to bring meaning into your narrative. What is this really about, God? Why did this happen? Why did she... Uh, why did this outcome happen for her but not for us, we have to. We come up with answers to this. Some of them are true answers, and some of them are assumptions and faulty, uh, faulty understandings of the heart of God, faulty understandings of our own narrative. But what's guaranteed is we will bring meaning to our narrative, we will assign meaning to our narrative, and that's, that is where we get to this story that Lewis tells in The Horse and His Boy. So I mentioned uh, in our first uh, uh, podcast this month That as we go through these uh, Narnia stories, you don't have to have read the Narnia books to understand these stories. So let me set this up for you. This is a story of a boy and a girl, and the two horses that they um, have a relationship with throughout this entire story. The horses are talking horses because we're in a land called Narnia where there are talking animals. And the boy is a peasant boy who is orphaned and adopted by um, a father who intends to sell him into slavery, and when he discovers this, his boy's name is Shasta, when he discovers this he escapes, and he escapes on a talking horse named Bree. So Shasta and Bree are sort of paired together through this entire story, and along the way Shasta and Bree are chased by what appears to be a pack of lions, and as they're being chased by these lions, as they're trying to escape from this terrible uh, situation that Shasta has, um, they're thrown into the company of a young girl named Erevis, who's sort of the a, a child of a nobleman who's been promised by her parents to marry a prince of another country, and she definitely does not want to marry this guy. So she uh, participates in drugging the woman who's taking care of her, so that she can escape um, this arranged marriage, and she also escapes on a talking horse, and that horse's name is Huynh. So Shasta and Erebus, the the boy and the girl, meet up because this pack of lions has brought them together, and they decide to travel together to help each other, and as they're traveling, they, they discover that there is a great threat on the horizon, that the prince that Erebus did not want to um, marry, that prince's father intends to invade the the, the the neighboring country. And so Shasta and Erebus are determined to warn that neighboring country that there's an attack about to happen. But along the way, these lions, and sometimes a single lion, show up in their adventure as they move through the countryside they have these experiences with this lion, and sometimes it seems like it's a pack of lions, that um, are not all pleasant. Uh, They're often, these encounters are fearful because, of course, the horses are afraid of lions, and lions can kill you if they catch you. So along the way, they have many different adventures, and uh, there are uh, challenges to overcome, dangers to, to move through, and it gets toward the end of the story and the, the lions that have shown up throughout their adventure, now Shasta is alone and lost, and, he, and he's realizing that one of those lions is stalking him and his horse Bree, and he thinks this is going to be the end now, that, that this lion that's been following them throughout their adventure and has actually wounded Erebus at one point, sort of Clawed her back as she is racing to escape. She's actually been wounded by this lion. Now Shasta is alone, lost in the wilderness, and he senses in the in the gloom of darkness that this lion is nearby. And so he sort of says, "This is going to be it for me." Uh, He's gripped with fear, and he knows he can't escape. So he starts to talk to the lion uh, in the darkness, and he goes back and forth with the lion, trying to figure out what he is, and he asks him if he's a giant or a monster, and eventually he discovers that uh, he, he is a lion, and that alarms Shasta even more, because the lion has been sort of a source of danger throughout their adventure. So Shasta finally just breaks down and says, why are you doing this to me? I mean, I've been through so many hard things on this, on my escape from my abusive father, and so many terrible things have happened, and Why are you doing this to me? I've been so unfortunate already. Why are you adding to it? And here's where we pick up the story. This is the voice. This is the voice of the lion. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Well, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? Well, there was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one. But he was swift of foot. Well, How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cad who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength to, of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. Then, then it was you who wounded Erebus. It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice. I'm telling your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Well, who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself loud and clear and gay, and then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was a vo- voice of a ghost, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him, yet he felt glad too. So this is Shasta's encounter with the voice, his first meeting with Aslan. He thinks it's been Many lions chasing them through their whole adventure, but it's just been this one, and he discovers that somehow, some way, for some reason, this lion has felt uh, it necessary to scare them and even wound his friend Erebus at one point. So here we have this interesting story that ends with Aslan, the the, the narrative metaphor for Jesus that Lewis uses in his book, basically saying to Shasta don't ask me why I wounded your friend Erebus. That's between her and me. You should only be asking me questions about your story. That I will answer, that I will dialogue with you about. But don't ask me stories about someone else." So here, Lewis is pinpointing sort of the fulcrum of our struggle to understand God's fairness, and even our default setting as people who compare our way and a sort of an acceptable identity. So we're wanting to know, well, why do you do that with that person? And does that mean you're going to do it with me? Does it Because you wounded Erebus, are you also going to wound me? And that's really what we're asking underneath these questions. Um, just a recent example of, uh, there's been a spate of, of teenage suicides in my community, and I know from my research that Um, Suicide is more prevalent in affluent communities, and one factor of that is that in affluent communities, comparison is rampant. Um, How can a kid growing up in affluent America feel so full of despair and emptiness and no hope that they think taking their life is the best option? Well, it doesn't make sense on, on paper, but it does make sense when you realize how much kids compare themselves and their status in affluent communities. And Comparison can be deadly, because if you compare yourself and come up empty over and over again, you 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 end up losing a sense of your identity. So here, Lewis is is speaking through his character Aslan, trying to uh, flesh out something that Jesus felt quite strongly about, which was, don't compare. So, S- Steph, as I read that story, what what sticks out to you in that in the in the kind of the context of the story and the, the specific of the little portion of the story that I read, what sticks out to you?
1: I think the word that comes to my mind is boundaries. You know, we talk a lot about boundaries, having boundaries in our lives, having boundaries in our relationships, and I think God's an excellent example of someone with very strong boundaries. And he keeps certain things to himself, and he doesn't—I've I've often thought about this sometimes in intercessory prayer, where I'm maybe praying for someone else, and He, he doesn't let you indiscriminately sort of read other people's mail like that. He preserves the integrity of your life and your relationship with him in a way that keeps outsiders minding their own business. And he, I think he does it because he loves us. I also think that we're kind of a little bit nosy. And we, are, we have a tendency to try and take on responsibility for what happens in other people's lives more than we should. And also in the point of this story and kind of in our conversation, we like to make conclusions about how our life should go or what may or may not happen to our life um, based on what happens with other people. And I think he's trying to protect us from that as well.
0: Yeah, and we, we make these kind of little reference points of we we, we have this belief system that says— if I can understand why you did that in their life, maybe I can understand why you'll do things in my life." Mm-hmm. And here, Aslan in this story is saying, what I'm doing in Erevis's life has no bearing mm-hmm. on what I'm doing in your life. Don't go there, you're not going to find any truth. And it reminds me of this story that we've uh, talked about several times on the podcast, it's it's a direct hit on what Lewis is trying to get after here, I think. It's at the end of the Gospel of John in John 21, where Jesus has uh, resurrected, and he, he's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he has a little fish breakfast with the disciples who are shocked once again that he's figured out how to uh, direct them to throw a net over one side of their boat and catch a big catch of fish. And so they come dragging their boat into shore, and they're thrilled to see Jesus resurrected, and they have breakfast with them, and then Jesus has a little side conversation with Peter, where he asks him three times, do you love me? And Peter responds each time in a more agitated way, you know I love you. And at the end of that little intense interchange that Jesus and Peter has, um, Jesus says this to Peter, which is startling. Now, remember, Peter is the guy who over and over again swore to Jesus... I'm gonna give my life up for you. I mean, all of these terrible things that you say are gonna to happen to you, Jesus, they're not gonna happen because you got me. I, I will certainly defend you. I will go down swinging. I will die before I let this happen to you. And yet he betrays Jesus anyway. He's he's actually the first to betray Jesus. So so here that's the context of all of this. And then this intense conversation of, do you love me three times? And Peter getting it, tapping into Peter's pain. So here's the man who... Who wanted to die for Jesus, and here's what Jesus says to him, some of the last words he said to Peter on earth I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Well, Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, Follow me. Now, the death that he was going to have that would glorify God would be crucifixion upside down. That's what he was foreshadowing, and this is the very thing that Peter said he wanted, and Jesus said, it's going to happen to you. And then here, here's where we, where we go next. Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved, who was John, who was writing these words, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? So Peter asked Jesus, well, what about him, Lord? And Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So again, Steph, we're, we're reading this story, and it, ha- it bears remarkable <laughs> resemblance to what Lewis is trying to live out here between Aslan, the great lion, and Shasta, the, the frightened boy. So what are some, some why questions we could ask about this encounter? Why, why, does, why does Jesus tell Peter, in such blunt language, um, none of your business? Uh, I, I'm simply not going to tell you. Um, what is that to you, is what he says. And that's a good question. What is it to you? I mean, if you put yourself in the shoes of Peter, how would we answer that question? What is it to you? Why do you care what's going to happen to John? I just told you how you're going to die. Peter wonders, is John going to die the same way? What's it to you how John dies? So what what do you think is going on inside of Peter, Steph?
1: Well, I, I can't help but think about, like... Five and six-year-old siblings. You know, if you have kids or you've been around kids, you know this conversation happens all the time. We're we're quite preoccupied by whether or not what we experience is going to be the same as what someone else experiences. It's we. I do think we have a God ordained um, disposition toward a sense of justice and fairness, and I think Peter's looking for that. He's tapping into that, and almost like a a sibling is like, well, what about what about him? Is that going to be the same for him or not? And I think that we we are wired to ask that question, and to compare, and to try and evaluate what is and isn't fair. And Jesus is just not really, he sidesteps the whole thing.
0: And here he's told Peter that he's going to die in a in a humiliating way, he's not going to be in control of his life anymore, and it's going to be a painful death, that's what he's foreshadowing. And when Peter asks him this question, well, what about John? Jesus' response is, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? Which means, essentially, Hey, if if I choose to have John not die a death like that, if I want him to live a happy, successful life where he's never threatened, what's that to you?
1: And I'd be like, well, that's not fair.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, well, well Jesus, well, why do I have such that a dark bad. path? Yeah. <laughs> why why am I on such a dark path? And you, and do you do you love John more than me? I mean, he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. I mean. Has he kind of hoodwinked you into loving him more than me? I mean, these are th- normal human thoughts we could have when we experience a, a difference in the way God appears to be moving in our lives in comparison to someone else in our life. So here Jesus is is making, I, I love what you said before, Steph, about that um, in that in the story that we read, there's a sense of boundary around a person's story. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that Jesus, as we've talked about before on the podcast, is the most self-differentiated person who ever lived. He is very aware of individual boundaries. That's why he invites, he never pushes, he never forces, he simply offers himself. Uh, inv- invitation is at the core of our relationship with Jesus, because he respects our boundaries as, as individuals. Jesus does not like triangular communication, (laughs) Um, he likes direct communication, he's showed that over and over again, because triangular communication messes with people's boundaries. So here he's saying, Peter, that's a boundary violation. The boundaries uh, in our relationship are, I am moving in your story, there's no bearing on your story with another person's story. Um, Let me work what I'm working in John's story, and I'll work what I'm working in your story, what it reveals and what it exposes is, will we trust the heart of the one who's saying these things? When, when that person seems apparently unconcerned about fairness, then what it gets exposed and what gets surfaced is, well, what do we believe about that person's heart then? If we trust the person's heart, then we don't mind if things look unfair. I don't mean that it doesn't matter to us, but at a deep level, we don't mind if someone seems to have more than us, or someone has gone through less pain than we have, if we trust the heart of the storyteller who's telling our story, and if we don't allow ourselves to be tempted into a life of comparison, where the fundamental value in that comparison is whether things are fair or not. Let's make a touch point or a connection to one other place in Scripture where Jesus makes it very clear that this uh, mentality that we have, the default setting toward comparison we have, is toxic. He tells us the parable of the vineyard workers, and again, a parable is a story that has within it an embedded prophetic truth that he's trying to plant like a seed in our heart so that we chew on the seed over and over again. So here, I'll read the parable of the vineyard workers, and this is in um, Matthew 20... I believe. So here, here we go. Verse 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. Well, at 9 o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard, and at noon and again at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around, and he asked them, Well, why haven't you been working today? And they replied, Because no one hired us. The landowner told them, Then go out and join the others in my vineyard. Well, that evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they'd receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Hey, those people only work one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us, who worked all day in the scorching heat. Well, he answered one of them, Friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is that, a, is that against the law for me to do what I want with my own money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So I love... I mean, th- this is the unpredictable Jesus at his best, <laughs> telling this story, and he's planting a seed, as I mentioned before, in this parable. What seed do you think he's trying to plant here, Steph? What are what are some things that strike you?
1: Well, he, I mean, he obviously built up the suspense, right? He pays the guys who come in last first, so that the the crowd is watching, and then they're f- making assumptions, and the right. So this is what we do. We see. Someone else receiving something, and we're watching, and we're making assumptions by comparison, like, oh, well, they got that much, so that means I should get this much. And then he calls that comparison logic into question, claims that it's faulty, and basically says, I make the rules based on my kindness, not not based on your relative position to someone else.
0: And you agreed to it. You thought it was fair until I was over generous with some people and then suddenly it's not fair. So I mean that is just so it's it's such a sort of diagnostic reveal of how our hearts are bent.
1: yeah, I don't I don't like it you know I mean I think <laughs> I, immediately I'm like, well, obviously Jesus is the ultimate reward and we've all received the gift. so therefore anything up to then is fair game and there's there, you know, there's just a part of me that totally gets these guys who've been working all day like, well, that, I, I'm not okay with that.
0: And he ends with this really frustrating question. Because if we had been if we had been in this story, this question would be so frustrating. Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others?
1: Yes. Yes. Answer, yes. yes, I should. Yes, I should. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a person. I'm not a robot. <laughs> yeah.
0: But but what's interesting here is he is like a surgeon. He's exposing something subtle in us that is definitely true and is a default setting that we have. Because we do say yes. Mm-hmm. Because what we're what he's trying to expose is we live our life in comparison. Mm-hmm. We're completely content until someone seems to have been um, treated more fairly than we have been, and all of a sudden we feel unfairly treated. Mm-hmm. That's what I was trying to allude to. That uh, one of the kind of the toxicities among affluent communities is exactly that. We, f- we feel like we have plenty until someone else has more plenty than we do, and then all of a sudden, in comparison to them, we feel like, hey, well, wh- why aren't we succeeding as well as they are?
1: Or likewise, we feel like we have plenty, and then we see it taken away from someone that we know, and then we become afraid, this could, what if this is taken away from me? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's both sides of that. There's fear and there's jealousy, and they both can live together.
0: I love what you told me before, Steph, that you've you've had sort of a, uh, what I I guess I would describe as a life-altering dream Mm. that that sort of infected the way you think about this. Maybe you could tell that.
1: Sure. So about, I don't know, it was probably 10 years ago, um, I was praying or dreaming, and I honestly can't remember which one it was because this, this was a while ago, but this very vivid picture of this exact story related to my husband. So if, if you're going to look at uh, somebody in your life whose story you're really highly invested in, I would say kids and spouses are way up there on the list. It's difficult to differentiate their story from your story because it's all kind of meshed together. So um, in this particular dream that I had, I was kind of hanging out in, I would say, in sort of a heavenly kind of place. And as all ladies do, I was having kind of a spa day with some other people. And we were just relaxing and enjoying the time. And I knew that God had given this sort of a day to me as a gift. And, um, and he was sort of absent from this portion. And then after my spa day was over, I was sitting in, I would, I call it a heavenly waiting room. I'm just kind of waiting. And he comes out of this room with my husband and it's clear that they've had an experience together. They've spent time. I don't know what they've been doing, but they kind of come out with this sort of mutual agreement, you know, when when you encounter somebody and they're, they're, uh, finishing up a conversation. So this is what happened and I remember, obviously, I'm, I'm extremely intrigued. What have you been doing all day? I didn't even know that my husband was here with you. And so I asked, like, what, what have you guys been doing? And just like in the story, just like in the parables, God looks right at me and he says, well, that's none of your business. And you would think that I would, hearing those words, I would be kind of put off. Like, well, what do you mean it's none of my business? This is my husband. This affects me. You know, we're, we're one flesh. It's in your Bible. Um, <laughs> but the, the truth is that actually that little instance has given me so much freedom in my marriage. Cause there are a lot of times when I, I want to know what's going on, what's his story, what's, what's happening in his life, because it also impacts my life. And each time I run up against that, I hear that it's not your business and it's very liberating actually to just be like, Oh, okay. It's actually not any of my business and I don't need to know. And I can just trust that god has got things he's got his own plan and that it's unfolding and that he's not really asking for my help or my participation in that it's it's given me a very good boundary and i've really appreciated it um so it to me it's been useful that's why i think i like this story um and i have had lots of times in other circumstances where i've been praying and and he has said to me my will for this person's life doesn't have anything to do with my will for your life, so don't try and make conclusions. And like I was telling Rick, though, that this the boundary is wonderful, but it does exist within um, a complicated, messy environment. It does... I, I do have to put trust in God, and sometimes that is difficult and hard and scary and feels risky. My trust is absolutely not at a perfect place. Um, I I trust that God loves my husband and has a good story unfolding, but some days it's hard to see what that is. Some days it's difficult. You know, this character, Erevis, gets torn to shreds. Sometimes we see loved ones get torn to shreds and we do not understand it. Um, And that's when that thing, well, it's not really any of your business. You have to kind of, the only other thing you can do is trust that there's something good happening because it doesn't really seem like there is.
0: And the only way we would trust is if we trust the heart behind it. And it's interesting that you bring this up in the context of marriage, because marriage is our most intimate relationship in life, and our issues, our default settings about fairness, get surfaced all over the place in your most intimate relationships. You know, it's very common. I've been married for 28 years now, and there are many times along the way where I've been frustrated with Bev for for something. Equally so, she's frustrated with me for for my stuff. But I I can get frustrated with Bev, and then I can start to see that thing that frustrates me. I start looking for it. Mm-hmm. So now I'm more aware of it all the time. So now my complaint becomes more often. And there've been so many times where I've been on a walk alone with with God, and I've been literally uh, kind of unconsciously complaining about Bev to Him. Like, what? Well, why? Why is this? Uh, why can't this be different? And his response is a recalibrating response, and he will be doing this the rest of our lives in our life. The recalibration that he always speaks to me is, but Rick, what if I've chosen, I've chosen you for her, for my own particular reasons, and yes, she is broken and you're broken, but I'm not going to fix all that brokenness. I have called you into this relationship to be a means of healing and restoration in her story. And I've called her into, into marriage with you so that she can be a vehicle for healing and restoration in you. She has to put up a lot with you, too, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. But he's basically recalibrating my focus from why, why can't that other person change so that um, this relationship will go smoother to um, instead, I want you to recommit to the reasons why I have you committed to her. Don't worry about her stuff is mm. basically the issue. Don't worry about her stuff. I, uh, that's up to me to deal with that. Your responsibility is to love her. That's it. So focus on loving her. So uh, that, for me, is a very practical yeah. thing that I, that I live out in my life as he recalibrates me. Let's close off by talking about a few other things that, that are very practical in how we live this out. One thing is that really helps me is I've made comparison a red flag in my life. When I hear myself making a comparison, and you have to pay attention because we do this like breathing, Mm -hmm. but when I hear myself make a comparison or I hear someone else who's close to me make a comparison, I stop. I push the pause button and I say, that's a comparison. And... That story doesn't have any bearing on your story. That comparison doesn't have anything to do with the meaning being lived out in your story. I either say that to myself or I say it to the person I'm close to, because comparison has now become a sort of reflexive red flag. You can do that, too, if you simply start paying attention to the number of times you compare— uh, it will quickly become a red flag for you. You won't have to think about it. It'll just come up. And Steph, you made a great suggestion. How about take the rest of the month of October and go on a comparison fast, where you decide, I'm going to stop comparing. Mm-hmm. And if I catch myself comparing, I'm going to stop and say, oops, nope, mm-hmm. not going to go there. Just for the month of October, what would, it, what would how would your life be different if you simply stopped comparing? see what would happen. Um, We're we're not heading into Lent in the spring, so it's not something you can give up for Lent, but as we're heading into the Christmas season, maybe the last half of October is something you can give to Jesus in advance. I'm going to give up comparing for the last half of October and see how that impacts me. Let's talk about a few other things. We, We talked before, Steph, about making sense of our own story by paying attention just to our story. Mm -hmm. So uh, how does that actually work, even in light of what you said your dream was about? He's saying that's none of your business. Mm -hmm. So how do you actively sort of focus on your own narrative and not the narrative of others?
1: Well, I think that uh, there are a lot of things that happen in our life that are fair game for conversation with God. I caught myself this morning even um, wanting to... Uh, I think, omit certain th- certain questions that I had for God. And, and I just had to pause and take some time this morning and sit down and ask the questions like, well, you asked me to do this and this happened and I didn't expect that. What do you think about that? And you, you know, here's here's some things I'm disappointed with. What are you thinking? I, having a conversation with him ongoing about your story is a great way to keep your focus on the boundaries that he's keeping you in. Um, mm-hmm. And that usually just, again, every episode, it comes down to to bread and milk staples.
0: That's right. Have
1: a quiet time, talk to Jesus, ask him questions, be specific, listen for a response. Be
0: open and vulnerable. I mean, if you find yourself in this place where you're comparison, don't shame yourself. Simply recognize it's human nature, but ask him to recalibrate you. You said something, Steph, I thought was really good, is um, be mindful of how much you put yourself in comparison situations. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, obviously, the first thing that came to my mind when I said that was social media, because I think it it really is comparison. Um, you're looking at the snapshots of people's life. You can't help but measure what they're experiencing to what you're experiencing. And I think there's a lot of great things that come out of social media, but I think comparison is a tricky little a byproduct of this thing that we do. Um, you know, Apple software just released a new application for screen time where you can set limits on different types of applications. And I think it's a really interesting thing that they've added as a feature. Um, And that might be a great complementary exercise if you have. I'm sure there's probably Android equivalents, but if you have an ability on your phone to set kind of just a time limit, I'm going to I'm going to not exceed X number of minutes or hours in this particular application, and have the phone help you with that, it might decrease the opportunity you have for s- just seeing access into everybody's lives, way more people than you would normally encounter on a day-to-day basis, and see if that helps you as well.
0: Yeah, if, if you're an alcoholic, don't hang out in liquor stores, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we are all addicted to comparison, so recognize that. If if you acknowledge we're addicted addicted to comparison— then don't put yourself often in places where comparison is the currency of that environment. Mm -hmm. It just makes sense to stay out of those environments more often. And maybe we can close with this. It's a good thing to remember also, above and beyond all these things, that Jesus is an artist at redemption. So all of the things that we um, have legitimate complaints about or feel unfair in our life, don't assume that those aspects of unfairness or complaint, that Jesus, that those are a no man's land for Jesus. No, he actually, he's taking those things and he's artistically redeeming them so that out of those experiences, sometimes very ugly experiences or grief-filled experiences, we can give out of that place treasure that no one else can give. And I, I often have this picture in my mind of uh, being called to go into dark caves on behalf of others who are in trouble. Well, Jesus sees millions and billions of dark caves to go into, and they're all unique in their own way, and they all require a certain kind of makeup to go into that cave. And I know from looking back on my own story that the the things that I look back on with pain now, um, and I I wish would have been different, uh, I, I know in my soul... I I don't wish that they would be different now that I look back on them, because they've allowed me to go into dark caves that I wouldn't be able to go into otherwise. They have really presented to me the great joy of my life. Um, So many aspects that were painful before for me now are sources of great joy because I get to live out my calling with others through the portal, through the filter of those pains. That can sound like Pollyanna in the moment. Nobody cares when they're going through pain what the outcome is going to be ten years from now, but Jesus lives now and in the future and in the past at the same time. And I've said before, Jesus loves in a way we don't. He loves He loves us right now, and he's also loving us ten years from now. He does care about what fruit this will bring ten years from now. We don't have to dwell on it right now, we just need to make it through whatever it is we're doing. But... What I'm saying is that those that have made it through can look back and say, I wouldn't trade this now. I wouldn't go through it again, but I wouldn't trade the fruit of it now, because it allows me to live a life and give out of that life in a way I never could um, uh, otherwise. So don't forget that Jesus is working in your present to bring about fruit um, in the near future and far future. He is working in your dark present no matter what. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail, on paying ridiculous attention to jesus.com You're going to find our podcast section, and you're looking for Season 3, Episode 41. Don't forget, check out the Jesus-Centered Bible. Just go to group.com if you want to check that out, or you can click on the link on our podcast page. And uh, so, uh, we'll finish out with two more episodes that are drawn from stories from the Chronicles of Narnia for the rest of October, and Who knows, Steph might show up again for one of those. Who knows? This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.
1: Bye.